Welcome to the Sunday morning worship services from the sanctuary of the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. We are located at 1328 Peachtree Street, next door to the High Museum of Art. Join us now for our worship of God. Today's Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 148. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to page 550. Listen to God's word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He fixed their bounds, which cannot be passed. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy wind fulfilling his command. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and women alike, old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his faithful, for the people of Israel who are close to him, Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Let us listen now for God's word to us. Now every year Jesus parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended, they started to return. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was with the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, "'Child, why have you treated us like this?' Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. This too is the word of the Lord. 
Let us pray. Oh God, we ask that all we say and think may be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to talk about the uh, English writer of the early 19th century named Jane Austen. And I was trying to think of some joke about that while I was reading Jane Austen or what made me read Jane Austen or know something about her, but I can't figure out a good joke, so that's my joke. Jane Austen wrote uh, books such as Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park. Most of those have been made over and over and over again by the BBC uh, into different movies and miniseries. But as a writer in the early 19th century, she wrote romances, but they very much were a social commentary on her times and on those who were privileged and those who were not so privileged and how they interacted with one another. And she spoke about the powers that be, and she spoke about um, what it meant to actually live with principles that weren't just based on the mores and the manners of society, but instead were based on what really matters. In one of her books, Emma, she actually introduces the character Emma Woodhouse by talking about her in the first sentences as a spoiled young woman who is uh, really overvaluing her own cleverness. And it's almost odd to start a novel by giving your protagonist such an intro introduction as one that you wouldn't want to necessarily identify with, although we uh, probably can. To do this is to, uh, to introduce her in a way in which we're already skeptical of the things she's going to do. And at one point, um, almost in a turning point of the novel, at a dinner, Emma, who is thinking herself clever and sly, embarrasses an old family friend by the name of Miss Bates. And there's a, a man in the story who is kind of romantically linked eventually to Emma named Mr. Knightley. Everybody's named Mr. or Miss. And Mr. Knightley says this after uh, Emma has embarrassed Miss Bates. Emma. I cannot see you acting wrong without a remonstrance. How could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? How could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? I had thought it not possible. And Emma blushes and was sorry and tries to laugh it off and say, how could I not help doing what I did? Don't you know that together in Miss Bates is merged the ridiculous and the good? She didn't even understand me. And Mr. Knightley says, I assure you, she did. She felt your full meaning and has talked of it since. And Emma cries out, oh, there is not a better creature in the world. But you have to recognize that I really didn't do anything wrong. And then he says, you, whom she had known from an infant, whom she had seen growing up from a period when her notice was an honor to have you now in thoughtless spirits and the pride of the moment laugh at her, humble her, and before her niece and others too. This is not pleasant to you, Emma. It is very far from pleasant to me. I must, I will, I will tell you truths while I can. It is badly done, badly done indeed. That phrase, badly done, is one that uh, just in hearing it perhaps uh, stirs something us, stirs something up within us. 
Some of you may be immune to scolding and uh, don't really care what others say to you or how they say it, but scoldings awaken one to the truth of the moment and really fill one with remorse. Some of us are keenly aware of the power of such a scold and know the feeling of butterflies fluttering in our stomachs and the blood rushing to our face as we flush and blush. Attempts of blowing it off and pretending like nothing matters are belied by our own physical reactions, our smiles that are here but not here. It's tough and it's no fun to be scolded to hear that we have done something wrong. In the story that Connie read from Luke chapter 2, Jesus' mother, having searched for him for three days, found him and said, Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. It is as if she had said, Badly done indeed. Again, even hearing her say, why have you done this to us, might have stirred up those quick feelings of having been caught doing something wrong or even being accused of doing something wrong. We know how that, again, affects us. There are few crushing words as those these days that are usually reserved for our pets as bad girl or bad boy. We even rarely use them today but they're so striking and create such a pit. Our story today in Luke is one of a scolding of Jesus. It is one that is a story of the scolded one, but also of a standing one. We've heard the scolding, and later we'll hear about the standing of this Jesus. It's important to look at this story in the context of Luke this is a story of birth as uh, Jesus' birth as it's told by Luke, which uh, starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth being told that they're going to have the child John the Baptist who will pave the way for Jesus. It goes on to have the angel Gabriel visiting Mary and telling her that she will bear the child of the Lord. It goes on to talk about Mary singing out with joy about the fact that the lowly have been lifted up. It goes on to talk about the census that leads Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem where Jesus is born. Luke has the shepherds visited by the angels. It has the shepherds going to visit Jesus, then going out and telling everyone about this child who was born. So a lot is happening within these first two chapters. That is what leads primarily up to this section where we read today. But also within those first two chapters, it's important that almost just as much time is spent to things that happen after Jesus born, is born before he's 12 years old and enters the temple. We're told, as Tony preached on Christmas Eve, that Jesus is named, that he's given that name, God saves. And that's an important detail of something that Mary and Joseph do right. They were told to name him Jesus and they name him Jesus. We're also told that they take him to Jerusalem for a purification ritual. Again, something that they're supposed to do. We're told that there were two characters, Simeon and Anna, who when this child Jesus was brought into the, the place of worship, one of them, Simeon, calls him Messiah, and the other prays this child in front of the entire group. 
So you have the birth story of Jesus, then you have these kind of uh, bona fides, uh, this kind of resume where Simeon, Anna, the, the, Mary and Joseph are doing the things again to show us that this Jesus is the one we've been told would come. We're also told in our story then that the family went like they should to celebrate Passover when Jesus was 12. They realize he's not with them. They look for him traveling in the group, then in the city, then in the temple, then Mary scolds, and the resonant bad boy echoes in our heads. While it's not fun to be scolded, it is fun to a degree to be the scolder, to have that feeling of self-righteous indignation in which we feel like we can tell someone that they have done something wrong and feel a little bit of power over someone in the place that they have done something wrong. I think it even gets our juices flowing until perhaps we see the reaction that it causes in someone else. Some of you have heard me talk about a bit by the comedian Louis C.K. in which he says, in the past you would insult someone, you would see their face, and then you would feel embarrassed that you had done it. But now if you just type it, you can send it and feel smug and not see any reaction and get away with it. Self-righteous indignation, to a degree, sounds as if what is happening as Mary enters the temple. Her scolding is a little bit like this. It's a statement of her present situation. It's a statement of her own feelings. But still, she says, why have you treated us this way? It's about where she is, who she is, how she feels at that particular moment. And this is not to kind of uh, enter into some criticism of Mary. Because we've seen already, and she will at the end of this passage, ponder all these things in her heart. But at this point, it's that human uh, um, panic of not knowing where he is and the effect that it has on her. By the way, this is a total caveat. National Geographic has a a wonderful uh, issue right now about Mary um, with all sorts of uh, kind of the history of of the traditions that surround Mary. Um, Mary comes in and says, why have you treated us this way? Well, it's important to know what Jesus was actually doing that she sees as treating him this way. So we heard that he's sitting among the teachers, he's listening to them, and he's asking questions. As Greg said, like school, he's attentive. He's in the present moment, and he's doing what he's supposed to do. We're also told he was amazing those around him at his understanding. If we were sitting in this story with him, from his perspective and those that are listening to him, as Mary and Joseph barge in and scold him, it would seem overblown and out of place. And we would wonder why this was happening. The other thing that Jesus was doing that offends Mary, or not that offended Mary, but that was happening, is his response. And he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And that passage can also be translated as, did you not know that I might, must be about my father's business? He's doing what he is supposed to be doing. He's doing what he was called to do from the beginning of his life. He's doing what was prophesied about him. His father's business is something that is then uh, kind of scrolled out before us throughout the Gospel of Luke. Literally, after Jesus is baptized and after he's tempted in the wilderness, he unrolls a scroll from Isaiah and he reads from it and he says that he's come as the anointed one, anointed means Messiah, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captive, to give sight to the blind, 
to let the oppressed go free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor upon the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. Favor, as John said, bringing the lowly up and bringing the mountains down, preparing the way for Jesus. Favor, as Mary sang in her song, lifting the lowly so unexpectedly. His father's business was bringing justice and peace to those who had only experienced scold and suffering. This was the business of his father. Again, going back to the story uh, of Emma, after again that she had said that Miss Bates uh, mixed together, blended together the ridiculous and the good, this is a different part of what uh, Mr. Knightley responds with. They are blended. I acknowledge. And were she prosperous, I could allow much for the occasional prevalence of the ridiculous over the good. Were she a woman of fortune, I would leave every harmless absurdity to take its chance. I would not quarrel with you for any liberties of manner. Were she your equal in situation. But Emma, consider how far this is from the case. She is poor. She has sunk from comforts that she was born to. And if she lives to an old age, most probably will sink more. Her situation should secure your compassion. And that is when he says, it is badly done indeed. Jane Austen's commentary on her society, the ridicule that she thinks is so harmless, might be fun and it feels clever even when we do it and we we lash out at those things that we want to persecute and prosecute around us. But we must recognize the power that is inherent in it and where power is being abused when those who we are ridiculing are in places that do not have power. We know that there's something about poking at the powers that be, but to poke at the poor and those over whom we have power is badly done indeed. It's not what Jesus does. Instead, even though he's scolded, he stands for the poor and oppressed. The scolded one becomes the standing one. That leads me to another story from a film that came out this fall called Bridge of Spies, which was directed by Steven Spielberg and starred Tom Hanks. And it's about the tale of an insurance lawyer named James Donovan. And James Donovan was uh, picked or assigned actually to defend Soviet spy Rudolf Abel. And then later, negotiated the exchange of this Soviet spy, Rudolf Abel, for Francis Gary Powers, whose U-2 spy plane had crashed in the Soviet Union, been shot down. There's a key dialogue between Donovan, this lawyer, and his client, Rudolf Abel, the spy. And this is, this is something that after Donovan has shown his determination, after those all around him have criticized him because he's actually taken serious the case of defending this man, and he's actually kept him alive instead of the fact that he was supposed to be executed in a way that is going to allow for him to be exchanged for Francis Gary Powers. And after showing all this determination, Rudolf Abel says this to him. Standing there like that, You remind me of the man that used to come to our house when I was young. By the way, Mark Rylance is the actor that plays Rudolph Abel, and he's incredible. I wish I had a recording instead of you listening to my terrible, overdramatic reading of this. He says, standing there, 
Standing there like that, you remind me of the man who used to come to our house when I was young. My father used to say, watch this man. So I did, every time he came. And never once did he do something remarkable. Donovan says, I remind you of him? And Abel says, this one time, I was at the age of your son. Our house was overrun by partisan border guards, dozens of them. My father was beaten. My mother was beaten. And this man, my father's friend, he was beaten. And I watched this man. Every time they hit him, he stood back up again. Soldier hit him harder. Still, he got back to his feet. I think because of this, they stopped the beating and let him live. The Russian phrase for that means standing man. You are a standing man. We know that the gospel of Jesus tells us that he is a standing man. But it was not easy because he was repeatedly being scolded here by Mary. Why have you done this to us? Later on by Peter. Later on by the Pharisees who are constantly at him, even right after he's read this scroll in the temple. Peter who says, no, no, you're not going to that cross. The Sanhedrin who put him to the test and put him to the trial are scolding him. Pilate scolds him and has him flogged. And all of the crowds who days earlier had cheered his name and said, Hosanna in the highest, are scolding him. Crucify, crucify. Yet he's still standing. The scolded is the standing. Two years ago, there were protests against the Turkish government by many of its citizens, and a lot of those protesters were being uh, put down harshly by the authorities, physically being beaten, even to the point where those that were coming to help those who were protesting, who were being burdened, being beaten, uh, medical uh, professionals who were coming were being told that their licenses would be taken away if they helped those who had protest and who uh, were beaten. There was a Turkish man named Erdin Gunduz, and during these protests, during the way that the government was treating these people, he got to the place in the square and stood for six hours. He just stood there. From the Guardian, the London newspaper, it says, the standing man exemplifies the features of the tradition of passive resistance, the ability to meet overpowering physical force. Remember, Jesus was flogged and crucified with a determined but passive. Remember, the passion of Christ actually means passive, how he approached his own death. It is a feat of defiance, has sometimes been the death knell of recalcitrant regimes because it points to resources that the protesters have that aren't monetarily, that aren't physical, but are their own spirits. It's not merely symbolic. It confuses and derails the rulers. He goes on to say that the protest, the article says the protest was both an affront and a question for the authorities. Beat him? Why? He's just standing there. Leave him alone? Then he wins, doesn't he? He's moving. Motionless protest is a symbol of great peril for the Turkish regime. 
Jesus standing protest against the powers of his time and of all time that say the poor don't matter, say you are an idealist, that say you must fight, you must not die passively, is a symbol of great peril for human arrogance, self-righteous indignation, and ignorance of injustice. Another key trait of the gospel of Luke is Jesus repeatedly says, follow me. Even to the point later, he says, take take up your cross and follow me. And he says it not by saying bad girl, bad boy, but by inviting us to participate in his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. A time of favor, as Isaiah says, for the lowly and forgotten. There's a gospel singer by the name of Rance Allen. And Rance Allen has a song called Miracle Worker, and it's a wonderful song, and it tells the story of Jesus uh, as the party was going on, turning water into wine, and it tells the story of Jesus giving sight to the blind, some of the things that are a part of what Isaiah says. But there's this one line that's so simple and yet startling in the song that Rance Allen sings. After repeatedly telling us that Jesus is a miracle worker, he says, I looked in the mirror, and what did I see? A miracle looking back at me. Sometimes we feel like the bad boys and the bad girls in the negative sense. Feel like we're being scolded. And yet we are miracles who are called to follow Christ where he goes. We're told that in the midst of the scolding, we must stand. Maybe we can be bad girls and bad guys in the good sense, resisting what is obvious in our world, to stand in the midst of scold, stand and follow the one who must be about his father's business. Amen. And so, figuratively, and for those who are able literally, let us stand together. Let us state our faith by reciting together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.